When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi everyone, Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Which Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hello and welcome to Material Girls, a pop culture podcast that uses critical theory to understand the zeitgeist. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And today we are talking about a side dish food fad that took the world by storm. Sweet potato fries. Marcel, I love when you come up with topics. (laughs) Hannah, do you remember when sweet potato fries became like the biggest thing ever? (sighs) Marcel... Here is the thing about having been a fat person my entire life. I remember every single diet trend. Oh, man. Mm. The thing that I think people who have been thin for most of their lives maybe don't know is that fat people have exhaustive knowledge of diet trends. Jesus Christ. I believe you. I can tell you all about the supposed glycemic index and the way in which different carbohydrates are apparently digested by your body in different ways and why regular potatoes are basically the same as eating sugar. Okay. But sweet potatoes, no, no. Oh, oh boy, have I got an episode for you, Hannah. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. I do more generally love the way that vegetables enter and exit the zeitgeist. And like, you know, the moment, like the Brussels sprouts moment of the early 2010s. <laughs> When we all really decided we were back into Brussels sprouts, which, by the way, we're not doing an episode about this, but that is because they re-engineered Brussels sprouts because they're a different food than they were when we were kids. That's why they taste better now. (laughs) They're actually just different. That's horrifying. Everything about this episode (laughs) is going to be horrifying. I just I really need people to know. It's time for Why This, Why Now, the segment where we dig deep. Ooh, is that a vegetable joke? Mm -hmm. Where we dig deep to consider the material conditions that allow our object of study to become zeitgeisty. Or in this case, (laughs) zeitasty. It's incredible that I can hold so much love and so much hate in my body at the same time. We contain multitudes, do we not? (laughs) We sure do. (laughs) Okay, so what I have today is a straightforward, happy story about how the humble sweet potato became a global savior in health and nutrition. Here's the timeline. It's the early 1990s. Generally speaking, white people are not interested in sweet potatoes, except as an occasional side dish at Thanksgiving. 
Also in the 1990s, studies are showing that vitamin A supplements can reduce child mortality by 20 to 30 percent. So World Health and Food Research Organizations are thinking about easier ways to get more vitamin A into little kids. One of those international food research organizations is called, get ready, we're going to use this phrase a lot, the International Potato Center, more commonly known by its Spanish acronym, the CIP, and it focuses on, get ready, potatoes. (laughs) (laughs) That includes sweet potatoes and other tubers, but as we're going to learn, sweet potatoes are kind of its like whole identity, okay? So the CIP gets big into researching and breeding sweet potato varieties to increase vitamin A. There are a lot of sweet potato varieties, like literally hundreds, like so many. And with the biofortified orange flesh sweet potato, the CIP finds itself a winner. Okay, wait. No, I have a question about that. No, 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 no. Don't worry about it. We're just going to blow right past it. The only problem is that this biofortified orange flesh sweet potato variety is not native to Africa, and the color and moisture level make it a hard sell to the locals. Just going to take a quick moment to add here. I got to be specific because I'm going to use this phrase similar to CIP, going to use this phrase constantly throughout this episode. When I say biofortified orange flesh sweet potato, you need to know that orange flesh sweet potato is in scare quotes because it is the literal name of the thing. It's not the label in the grocery store. No, no, it's not. I wish it was though. Orange flesh sweet potato. Also sweet potato is one word. It's confusing. (laughs) Okay. All right. So we are entering the mid 1990s to late 1990s. The CIP and his partners are basically functionally peer pressuring Kenyans and Ugandans to get on the biofortified orange flesh sweet potato train. They are, and I'm not joking, putting on plays. They're using the color orange in marketing materials. They're using the word sweet in marketing materials. They are distributing pamphlets, t-shirts, hats, anything to convince the locals that orange is cool so they'll eat biofortified orange flesh sweet potatoes. This process takes years. Funding is scarce. And this program is still fairly localized to Uganda, Kenya, and eventually Mozambique. Okay, Marcel, I've, I've really got to ask. Nope, no, 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 Just wait, just wait, just wait, just wait. You're going to love it. You're going to love it. We're going to fast forward to 2007 to 2008, okay? I don't know if you remember... But during this period, grain prices were in like a state of global crisis. Wheat prices literally doubled. Nobody could afford to eat food. It was chaos. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which had just started investing in agriculture the previous year, all of a sudden gets really into sweet potatoes. Turns out (sighs) white people love sweet potatoes. Who knew? In fact, by 2009, The biofortified orange flesh sweet potato research was so successful that the CIP, quote, mainstreamed breeding for orange flesh sweet potato as its flagship product and orange flesh sweet potato became a dominant component in their communication strategy, end quote. In other words, the health benefits of biofortified orange flesh sweet potato was now a globally accepted fact. Okay, but like, no, no, when we no, talk no, 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 about, no, it's a happy ending. It's a happy ending. Just listen, just listen, just listen. You're gonna love it. Between 2010 and 2013, a bunch of American and European nutrition organizations, more white people, start funding the incorporation of biofortified orange flesh sweet potato into their own national nutrition programs. So like, ooh, test studies in Africa show that this is successful, so now white people will use it. Around the same time, local governments, NGOs, and other investors in sub-Saharan Africa start taking seriously the industry advantages of biofortified orange flesh sweet potatoes. Things like, ooh, agro-processing the biofortified orange flesh sweet potato roots to make flour and starch products and other processed food additives. Families are healthier, new jobs are popping up, everybody wins. And that, my friends, 
is the straightforward, totally not complicated, happy ending story of why sweet potato fries got super zeitgeisty. Marcel. Hannah. Can I ask some questions now? Okay, yes. Thank you. Thank you for your patience. I appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. I loved your tidy narrative. (laughs) But I want to maybe poke a couple holes in it. Let's start with um, biofortification. Is that like genetic engineering? (laughs) Are you being paid by Big Sweet Potato? What is going on? The CIP is currently uh, currently got me in shackles over here. Big orange flesh sweet potato. Big biofortified orange flesh sweet potato. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really, it sounds like, you know, genetic engineering and genetic modification. So are we looking at like the popularity of sweet potato fries being a product of like genetic engineering being reframed as socially acceptable among health conscious demographics who like, you know, don't like genetically modified organisms? So because biofortification came up like a lot in my research, I had to do uh, some digging to to really make sure I understood what the term means because you're right it sounds exactly like genetic engineering and that's what, like I'm not against genetic modification oh, I gotta I say like <laughs> fully, yeah fully. I mean I'm not like looking for things to say no GMOs yeah because like humans genetically modify crops we, that's right we always have that's how we got edible corn right so like there's lots of kinds of genetic modification. But then there's like sinister corporate genetic modification. Yes. So the thing about biofortification is that it is possible to do it using selective breeding. And that's the kind of genetic modification that you're talking about. That over centuries, Mm -hmm. we selectively breed plant varieties to, you know, enhance certain characteristics. It's not unlike dog breeding, which we've talked about before. (laughs) Creepy. However, it's it's a thing that humans do. We like to splice and move things together, okay? Yeah, we like to do science. It's like one of our main things. It's true. We love science. Uh, big content warning, this episode is about science. Um, <laughs> let me also add that part of why biofortification is particularly useful when it comes to, say, improving and enriching food items is that it's easier for humans to get the vitamins they need from food than, say, from supplements, especially if you're looking at rural areas and especially if you're looking at, like, exploited areas that, say, are, quote-unquote, still developing because, like, a colonialism happened and totally ruined their economy and their standards of living. Traditional foodways. Traditional farming and agricultural practices, right? So when it comes to biofortification, the term doesn't necessarily refer to genetic engineering done with evil intention. Okay. Yeah. Although it might be done in a lab with splicing and breeding. But you can do things in a lab that are evil. I think. Not that I'm aware of, but you know, (laughs) I hear you. Now, whether the biofortified orange flesh sweet potato itself was biofortified using like conventional breeding methods, like genetic engineering in a lab is a bit unclear. Because until around 2005, all of the breeding research and development of the biofortified orange flesh sweet potato was conducted by the CIP, the International Potato Center. And they're a shadowy cabal. And while the CIP doesn't have clear ties to biotech corporations like, say, Monsanto, some of its research partners do. It's sort of commonly known that, like, Monsanto funds food and seed research development in universities all over the world, right? Mm-hmm. And it is also true that in 2014, the CIP appointed... Dr. Barbara Wells as its director general, and she used to work for Monsanto. It's like part of her CV. This sounds very suspicious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I haven't found any CIP publications that say the biofortified orange flesh sweet potatoes are not genetically engineered. But I did find two publications that suggest that they were conventionally developed. Okay. Okay. I'm going to give you one. So like via crop. Via breeding. Manipulation rather than, yeah. Okay. Yes. 
crop manipulation, selective breeding. So according to an article called, man, science people know how to write article titles. According to an article called Patterns of Political Response to Biofortified Varieties of Crops Produced with Different Breeding Techniques and Agronomic Traits, published in 2007, there was a genuine reluctance among consumers in Mozambique to eat genetically modified varieties of sweet potato. And so the organization Harvest Plus had to launch quote, a public relations campaign to convince officials and consumers that the orange flesh sweet potatoes were not genetically modified, end quote. Sorry, Harvest Plus? That's right. And it's one word, Harvest Plus. Cool. So there's no way an organization called Harvest Plus isn't into genetic engineering, right? (laughs) Yeah. So like, so, (laughs) so similar to the International Potato Center, the CIP, Harvest Plus is a food science organization where the CIP's whole deal is potatoes and tubers. Harvest Plus's whole deal seems to just be biofortification. Oh my God, a match made in heaven. Truly. And their biofortification might be done in a lab. Yeah, so they're like explicitly pro-genetic engineering. Hannah, I'm gonna I'm gonna get you to read. So I went to the FAQ because I was like, somebody tell me if this is genetic engineering because it sounds sus. So um, I went to the FAQ. Harvest Plus has an FAQ about genetic modification because you know savvy readers like you and I, Hannah, we are not alone. Could you please read the FAQ about genetic modification from Harvest Plus's website? God, I'm so ready. It's three paragraphs. Here we go. Quote. Biofortification of staple crops can be done through conventional crop breeding, agronomic practices, such as through application of fertilizers, or genetic modification, GM. So far, only one GM biofortified crop, golden rice, has been approved for commercial propagation in the Philippines. To date, all biofortified crops developed and released through the efforts of Harvest Plus and its partners have been through conventional plant breeding. However, Harvest Plus, as a part of the CGIAR, does not oppose the use of GM methods to develop biofortified crops. We recognize the strong potential of GM and other novel approaches, which offer innovative and efficient ways to improve the nutrient content and nutrient bioavailability of crops. Our biofortification work is always demand-led. It is guided by the stated preferences, policies, regulations, and legislation of the countries in which we operate. Doesn't sound true. We respect the right of governments to determine the best interests of their countries and citizens based on the available evidence, end quote. Marcel, there's some complex entanglement Mm. of techno-culture and imperialism at Mm. work here, huh? Oh, you just just hold on to that thought, Hannah. We are going to get into it. Don't you worry. Okay. Um, For readers who maybe like their eyes glazed over a little bit during that three-paragraph explanation of Harvest Plus's relationship to GM, genetic modification, they're basically saying, oh, we're totally doing genetic engineering. We're just not doing it commercially. What goes on in the lab stays in the lab for now, you know? Yeah, yeah. But part of what makes this all so complicated is that like, the premise that they're laying out here that like sometimes in labs we make food more nutritional, like because whatever, there's like widespread vitamin A deficiency. Like I don't have a problem with people doing science to my food. You know, like I eat food. I eat food that's mostly made out of science. What's an impossible burger? I couldn't impossibly tell you. Sure, sure, um, sure, sure. Science. It's made out of science. My understanding though is that like a lot of this genetic engineering in food creates these like monocrops that then are like really, really bad for soil, Mm -hmm. like deplete soil really quickly, Mm -hmm. create like patterns of dependence of like developing nations or historically colonized nations on imperial powers Mm -hmm. that like it is pretty impossible to disentangle genetic modification of food from the like really complex capitalist and imperialist logics of food access absolutely on a global scale yes 
I just want to make it clear that even though we don't believe in time, we are inherently anti-science. No. <laughs> I'm not anti-science, but I am tremendously suspicious of the application of science. What are they doing? <laughs> what are they doing in those labs? That's what I want to know. <laughs> so to like follow up on your position, which I think helpfully clarifies like what the suspiciousness of the genetic modification is or what it boils down to. Like agribusiness as a major private sector stakeholder plays a huge role in shaping global food management. It has a huge role in shaping and altering longstanding farming practices. As we mentioned earlier, companies like Monsanto literally fund academic research into food. And it's weird when a business pays you to do research that it then has a stake in what you say about it. Like, it's not... No, it's not weird. It's, it's a demonstration of the impact of your research and its ability to produce new trademarks. Oh, and Jesus patents. Christ. That's what our universities want us to do. And like, that's where we're at, right? Because university, yeah. the university system has become a business model and not just like a collegial, like, let's all learn together. So like, it's not a secret that for-profit seed companies, for example, are invested in the dependency of farmers by requiring them to repurchase their seeds every season or requiring them to repurchase the fertilizers every season. Like farmers and grassroots organizations who talk about food and seed sovereignty, they're talking about the right to retain their seeds, the right to retain their planting materials from year to year so that they're not dependent on these businesses. Yeah. However, the businesses have more power, shockingly, in this capitalist world that we live in. They have yeah. more power than farmers and grassroots organizers. Yeah. And they've got the funding to do huge campaigns where they convince people that the color orange is cool and sexy. That's exactly right. So to your point about the sort of ambivalent nature of food research... Orange flesh sweet potato has like one central characteristic that makes it very, very distinct from, say, genetically modified golden rice okay. or genetically modified corn, like any of these crops that require you to repurchase your seeds year after year. And that's the fact that sweet potatoes are what is called vegetatively propagated, which means that you can just leave your vines in the ground you can even plant your garbage potatoes later and like your scraps and stuff and they'll grow new plants. Okay. And you won't get sued by Monsanto for no, doing that. No, well, not yet. Not okay. yet. Let's not, we can't predict the future here. Like, yeah, the, but the point is that sweet potatoes have not historically been a big sell for private sector agribusiness because they don't, they don't make you dependent on the company that researches and develops them, if that makes sense. Okay. So let's backtrack a little bit because we are talking about sort of specific geographical and geopolitical contexts as well. So you mentioned earlier that it took years for the International Potato Center to convince people in Kenya and Uganda to get on the orange flesh sweet potato train. Mm -hmm. So were sweet potatoes new to that area of Africa entirely? No, not at all. Okay. And we'll definitely... Just orange flesh sweet potato, just... Biofortified orange flesh Just sweet the biofortified orange flesh sweet potato. That's right. So like we'll come back to why I think this is important because sweet potatoes have been a global food staple for centuries, probably millennia. I have an example. One food science researcher named Adelia Bovell-Benjamin writes, quote, the sweet potato is a staple food source for many indigenous populations in Central and South Americas, Rukyu Island, Africa, the Caribbean, the Maori people, Hawaiians, and Papua New Guineans, end quote. Okay, so it's like white people in the West to whom sweet potatoes are new. Yeah, so I don't think it's a coincidence that until the orange flesh sweet potatoes' recent popularity, sweet potatoes in general were like a subsistence crop rather than, say, a big export crop. And fun fact, I have textual evidence to show that chef and restaurateur Jamie Oliver only tried sweet potato fries for the first time in 2002. Wow, that's airtight. Were they were they white flesh sweet potatoes before they were orange flesh sweet potatoes? Is that the issue? Did the flesh color change? So in 
the region of sub-Saharan Africa where the biofortified orange flesh sweet potato is being introduced, historically, they had been yellow or white fleshed. Okay. Okay. But the orange flesh is not the biofortified orange flesh, but like an, a more natural, a more natural orange flesh, a uh-huh. coral flesh, if you will. <laughs> was uh, indigenous to those regions that Adelia Bovell Benjamin identified what we now call Central and South Americas in particular. Okay. All right. I think I do need to ask how the sweet potato fry comes into it, though. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, sweet potato fries were trending. Was the sweet potato fry what was solving vitamin A deficiency in children? Mm. I wish. <laughs> I wish, you wish, we all wish, but no. Biofortified French Bio-fortif- fries. If you could just biofortify French fries and chicken nuggets, you'd be set. I mean, I'm willing to argue that they are biofortified. <laughs> but oh no, but they probably, probably not are. in the way that they want us to think they are. So in my research about the biofortified orange flesh sweet potato, I came across a number of references to the fact that um, the vitamin A rich tater does make functional French fries. And I thought that that was funny. (laughs) Okay. I mean, I love this. I love the way food science people talk about food. Mm -hmm. So like, are the journal articles (laughs) commenting on the deep fryability of the biofortified orange flesh sweet potato. Yes, they absolutely did because now that white people are on the biofortified orange flesh sweet potato train, they're thinking about nutrition for white people. So, Hannah, have you ever heard mm-hmm. the term overnutrition? <laughs> no. <laughs> I hadn't heard it either. And it It smacks of euphemism, if you will. (laughs) Um, I bet, I bet you are a smart, genius scholar. I bet you can guess what it refers to. Oh, no. Oh, no. Overnutrition is just being fat. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. So according to the National Library of Medicine, quote, overnutrition is a form of malnutrition, imbalanced nutrition, arising from excessive intake of nutrients leading to accumulation of body fat that impairs health, i.e. overweight slash obesity, end quote. So here is where we transition from the, you know, genetic engineering of the biofortified orange flesh sweet potato into the health fad that was associated with the popularity of sweet potato fries. God damn I know. It. Sorry, over, over, over nutrition. nutrition. I know, I know. Too many nutrients. Too many nutrients. So, like, how do we link that? Like, if the idea is that the sweet potato is biofortified, like, is there a link there to, like, the idea of overnutrition and then its movement into the West as a health food? Yes, totally. So like in 2007, this is the same time period. I think it's significant, but I don't have any like solid evidence to make a causal link. Um, The same time period when global grain prices were skyrocketing and also when the International Potato Center was gaining like major, major traction with funding and donors, with its sweet potato projects in Africa, American and European food scientists are publishing about how nutritious and versatile the sweet potato is. So Hannah, I have for you, could you please read this downright love letter to sweet potatoes written by the food science researcher that we quoted above, Adelia Bovell Benjamin? Absolutely. Quote, the sweet potato has immense potential to help prevent and reduce food insecurity and mal, under, and overnutrition in developing and developed countries because of its nutritional composition and unique agronomic features. It is because of these unique features and nutritional value of the sweet potato that the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA, has selected it as a candidate crop to be grown and incorporated into the menus for astronauts on space mission. Sweet potatoes in space. <laughs> okay. Uh, the sweet potato has immense potential and has a major role to play in human nutrition, food security, and poverty alleviation in developing countries, end quote, mm. and also it will make 
people in developing nations less fat, apparently. Apparently, that's the subtext, right? It's shitty. Um, I have one <laughs> more lengthy quotation from Bovell Benjamin that I would love for you to read, please. This is the list of potential sweet potato products. I was a fan of their work before, but now I'm turning against them. Quote, potential sweet potato products, some with limited commercialization, include sweet potato bread pudding, casserole, tart, muffins, scalloped sweet potato, and refrigerated sweet potato pieces. Other value-added commercial sweet potato flour products sold in supermarkets in the United States include sweet potato pancake mixes and sweet potato chips. Some East Coast restaurants in the United States, especially in New York and Florida, now feature sweet potato fries, <gasps> end quote. We did it. 2007? 2007. I think so. Yeah, I think this is 2007. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, we did it. We did it. We made that transition. <laughs> so a lot of this is just me piecing together like material evidence for the causal relationship. Yeah. I have nothing except for evidence. <laughs> I don't have a thesis. I can't say that North Americans sweet potato fries craze was caused by all of the biofortified Bio orange flesh sweet potato. <laughs> research and development. But I can tell you that in the first decade of the 2000s, the per capita production of sweet potatoes in the U.S. rose by 30%. I can also tell you that during that same decade, the sweet potato market in the U.S. grew so consistently that the American processed foods company ConAgra Foods eventually invested $155 million to build a processing plant dedicated to sweet potatoes. Because they hoped that while they would cure childhood malnutrition, they would also cure fat people. Yeah. I mean, that's the subtext. Slash text. So subtext. Uh, here's a quote from the Wall Street Journal. It's a piece about ConAgra's sweet potato enterprise. ConAgra is the most sinister name yet of all of the sinister names. ConAgra was also at the same time working with a university to genetically engineer sweet potatoes to grow like bricks. The goal was to make them grow in the shape of bricks so that they would be easier to turn into fries. But you know what? That <laughs> is just a fun fact. So here's the quotation from the Wall Street Journal piece about ConAgra's sweet potato enterprise. Quote, ConAgra's Lamb Weston division began offering sweet potato products to restaurants in 2001. Sales took off, growing about 50% a year in the last five years. The national trend to eating healthier helped. Sweet potatoes, packed with vitamin A and high in fiber, are widely perceived as healthier, though when fried, it's debatable whether they are healthier than regular potatoes, end quote. So during the mid-aughts, there were, you need to know this, when I did my newspaper database search for sweet potato fries, there were tons of newspaper articles talking about sweet potatoes as a cool new feature on restaurant menus. And huh. I wish we could read them all. Alas, we can't. But Hannah, <laughs> would you be so kind as to read this excerpt from a 2005 Toronto Star article? Absolutely. Quote, it couldn't have happened to a nicer tuber. Sweet potatoes are being cut into fries and served at Pizza Pizza's new family eatery, Chicken Chicken. <laughs> We've watched sweet potato fries evolve from a vegetarian restaurant staple to a trendy cafe offering to an upscale alternative to regular fries. And now, finally, a ubiquitous fast food offering. These perfectly tasty fries are the good news about Canada's first chicken chicken. <laughs> The bad news is that the fledgling chain serves fried chicken a la KFC, not the healthier rotisserie chicken a la Swiss chalet, end quote. What, what a shame. We could have had it all. <laughs> we could have had it all. But unfortunately, 
I was in Ontario in 2005. I have never heard of chicken. chicken. Really? You, as a vegan in Ontario in 2005, hadn't heard of Canada's first chicken chicken. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I missed that. Uh, I missed that. Okay, all right. Marcel, you know that I just want to make fun of news coverage of sweet potatoes mm -hmm. for the rest of our Mm -hmm. lives. Mm -hmm. But... Couldn't have happened to a nice tuber. <laughs> I picked that one just for you. Damn shame about the fried chicken. Damn though. shame. But you know, keeping in mind that this is that this is you know ostensibly a podcast where we like talk about critical critical theory. Yes. Do you think we could like talk a little bit more about? the, like, imperialist undertones of all of this. Yes, Hannah. Yes, I think we could. I think we should. And I think we shall. Great. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. All right. It's time for the theory we need, a nutrient-rich blend of sources clinically proven to improve your brain power. Okay. Would you say that the theory that we're about to engage with is both biofortified and orange-fleshed? Yes. Yum. So in order to get at the nuances of the sweet potato fries moment, we're going to talk about food imperialism. Great. Hannah, I feel like you know a little bit about imperialism. What do you know about this particular flavor of imperialism? Yeah, I have encountered conversations about food imperialism primarily in the context of Indigenous scholars working in so-called Canada. So primarily folks who have talked about the way that the Canadian government, like the settler colonial government, intentionally disrupted Indigenous food practices Mm -hmm. as a tool of colonial governance and land theft, right? Mm -hmm. So like the really sustainable ways in which Indigenous nations engaged with land, like through hunting and moving around at different times of year and like rotated crops and like wild crops, you know, all of these sort of like really complex and profoundly sustainable food practices got interrupted by the appropriation of land for settlers by the like outline of a lot of like fishing and hunting practices by the uh, limiting of nations that had used a huge amount of territory down to like very small reserves and that profound interruption of traditional agriculture and hunting and, and food practices not only was like a tool of material dispossession, but also was a way because like our food practices are deeply embedded in our cultures and our languages and our histories and our kinship structures. So like it's also a way of disrupting culture and it has also made like a lot of Indigenous people very sick. Like there's very limited food access on a lot of reserves. So there's a lot of like nutrition-related illness. There's like, particularly in northern, like remote northern communities, like food is really, really hard to access and people don't have access to their traditional forms of food. And like food imperialism has been like a major tool of colonialism. Yes, absolutely. I think some listeners might also be familiar with forms of food imperialism, like the appropriation of a people's food. Oh and so, gosh. like, that's also a big the thing. The fucking quinoa trend. The quinoa trend. Like, where white people got into quinoa and it fucking, like, broke whole countries' economies. So all of these nuances of food imperialism are at work when it comes to our conversation about sweet potato fries. But I think the key 
thing that I want to bring home is exactly this version that you're describing, Hannah, of like colonization, disrupting traditional farming practices and traditional food growing practices and replacing them, basically. Okay. Gotcha. So I want to start with just a very short piece by a columnist for the travel guide company Fodor's, Payal Dar. Dar writes, quote, food culture, including acceptable levels of what is authentic or exotic, is heavily informed by the existing white supremacist capitalist heteropatriarchal framework of today's world, end quote. They write specifically that, quote, in a world where the lens belongs to the white Western commentator, food too is experienced with an Orientalist bias. Whether it's the discovery, quote unquote, of a centuries old superfood like quinoa on social media or misrepresenting a longstanding regional staple, end quote. And for folks who are not familiar with Orientalism, <laughs> may I refer you back to the second episode of the reboot of Which Please? That's right. In which we engage extensively with uh, Palestinian scholar Edward Said. That's right. Um, so then the second piece that I want to spend a little bit more time with is an article by a writer named Joe Kabuti for the digital publication The Elephant. And I had never heard of The Elephant before, but it's an African-based, like pan-African research and uh, advocacy and scholarship publication full of good content. Okay. Love to hear it. So I'm going to start with uh, just a quick quotation here from Kabuti that says, quote, Food has always been a fundamental tool in the process of colonization. Through food, social and cultural norms are conveyed and also violated. Indeed, one cannot properly understand colonization without taking into account the issue of food and eating, end quote. Mm -hmm. So in his article, Kabuti really starts by giving us a helpful and uh, straightforward context about the common practice that British imperial soldiers engaged in to burn crops and kill livestock as a means of controlling locals. Yeah, because if you can control people's access to food, you can control everything. Exactly. So, um, yeah. Hannah, would you kindly read this next quotation? It's about Kenya specifically. Quote, the colonial state used white settlers to introduce commercial agricultural production as the mainstay of the colonial economy. The state forcibly seized land, livestock, and other indigenous assets from certain communities and households on behalf of the settlers and the colonial administration, systematically marginalizing and subordinating indigenous African agriculture, end quote. Can I just say, this is really reminding me of the way that, like, colonialism is also this, like, complex practice of, like, colonial governments will practice a structure closer to home and then export it. Mm -hmm. So if you look at, say, like, Ireland mm -hmm. and Scotland mm -hmm. and, like, their subdivision into English-owned land parcels that were then farmed in, like, profoundly unsustainable ways at odds with the traditional food practices in those regions, they then, like, once you've dispossessed the people there, then you send Irish people and Scottish people out to England's other colonies to practice the exact things that stripped them of their land and culture in those places. So it's this, like, like sort of cascading effect, and it's really reminding me that, like, we can see these same practices being used in different places and on different scales as these like technologies of imperial violence. That's right. That's right. It's a really useful reminder that in this way, we're all fighting the same battle, but by implying that these are somehow like distinct or unrelated national concerns really erases the role of like the single colonial metropole in shaping like ultimately our global food system, for example. Yeah. So in the process of colonizing, in this example, Kenya, like cash cropping became the technique used by the settlers because the settlers were not interested in subsistence farming. They were interested in using farmland to make money. Of course. And also because of all of the dispossessed uh, indigenous Africans who had been 
pushed off of their land and had their livelihoods stolen from them, now you have a cheap source of labor. So it's, I think, essential to realize that in, again, we're talking about Kenya here, but like in sub-Saharan Africa in general, like traditional farming practices, which had meant, say, growing millet and tubers and legumes and kale, like a diverse and rich... And that, those practices... Like those practices, farming in a way where you like plant a lot more different kinds of crops and rotate them seasonally and, and you know, rotate things that like have different needs in the soil and stuff. It is like more labor intensive and it's harder to produce cash crops that way, right? Like it's really appropriate for subsistence farming, but it's really hard to like make a shit ton of money doing it. Um, and also monocrops are unbelievably bad for soil. Yes. yes. <laughs> I remember I read a book called Dirt. I can't remember the, the name of the author, but it's basically like a history of empires ultimately collapsing under the weight of their own agricultural needs because the agricultural practices of empires are so incredibly destructive and that we can see this from like the area in the Near East that is used to be called the Fertile Crescent and is now like all desert and like the Dust Bowl in the U.S. in the 1930s. Like these are crises that are created by non-sustainable imperial food practices. So it's like it ultimately what these practices do is like strip all of the nutrients out of the soil until ultimately those places become places that like literally can't feed the people who live there. That's right. So traditional farming practices require an intimate knowledge of the land, an intimate knowledge of the types of nutrients that are returned to the land when you say, you know, you have like what we now call often bumper crops, right? So you have a crop that you grow not to harvest, but to plow back into the field. And that um, like fortifies, if you will, fortifies the soil um, to get ready for the next crop that you put in. And so like traditional farming practices that had a variety of different crops coming in and rotating, those were subsistence practices because they were not designed for export. They were designed to feed your local community. Um, and I don't know if you remember this, Hannah, but I remember when I was first like a hot young thing learning about international development and hearing the term subsistence farming and associating it with like starvation that like, oh, subsistence farming yes. is bad because it means that you can't make money. And that is capitalism, baby. That is an ideology imposed on the world where people used to subsistence farm to feed their communities. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. It's like literally a sustainable form of food production. That's right. And we're like, no, 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 there's no growth. That's right. You can grow kale, but you can't grow your GDP. What about your goddamn produce? That's what I say every day. That's what GDP stands for, right? Yes. Goddamn produce. Thank you. Um, okay, okay. I've got uh, I've got one last big old quotation from Kabuti. Quote, Today, there has been growing interest in the battle for control over land, food, and even seeds in Kenya. Under the guise of improving food security in Kenya, a new wave of food imperialism is taking shape. A series of public-private partnerships are aggressively shaping a food policy geared towards helping corporations access prime resources and markets within Kenya's food systems. Farmers are being forced to change from low-cost, sustainable, traditional agriculture to intensive industrial farming with intensive application of chemical fertilizers, pesticides, and corporate-owned seeds. This domineering framework to control what food people grow, how they grow and consume it, is in contrast to what many are calling food sovereignty, end quote. Okay, so is Kabuti specifically referring here to the biofortified orange flesh sweet potato? Not specifically, no, but we simply cannot ignore Kabuti's description of food imperialism <laughs> and the massive campaign to get sub-Saharan African farmers growing this specific variety of biofortified orange flesh sweet potato. Okay, Marcel, 
Because I, at this point in our collaboration, kind of live inside your brain, Ooh. I I think I know what your thesis <laughs> is, but why don't we say the quiet part out loud for the people? What a good idea, Hannah. Let's do that. Marcel, is it wrong after all that to suggest that you might have a tasty thesis on the tip of your tongue? Ooh, no, that is exactly correct. My goodness. Okay. The orange-fleshed sweet potato is, by all accounts, a wonder tuber. It's a starch, but also contains protein and beta-carotene. It's super versatile in terms of food preparation and uses. You can eat the roots, shoots, and leaves. In the mid-aughts, there were hundreds of sweet potato varieties grown around the world. It's also apparently, quote, high-yielding and drought-tolerant, end quote, which in our current climate crisis is no small potatoes. The aggressive campaign to solve sub-Saharan African malnutrition by monocropping the biofortified orange flesh sweet potato, however, seems to complicate rather than fortify the region's efforts towards reestablishing food sovereignty. While it is true that the introduction of this vitamin A-rich tater was central to successfully reducing hunger and increasing economic prosperity, none of the organizations involved in sweet potato research, development, scaling, or public relations seem willing or able to acknowledge that the cause of that malnutrition and economic insecurity was colonialism. Moreover, Little attention or recognition seems to have been paid to the culinary or cultural roots of the OG orange sweet potato, indigenous to the regions we now call Central and South America. This gap in history implies that the miracle spud was simply invented through modern science. The miraculous biofortified orange flesh sweet potato has thus been scooped out of its pre-colonial roots and deployed in a neo-colonial measure to control food security in post-colonial states. Meanwhile, for North American foodies, the biofortified orange flesh sweet potato isn't simply a tasty addition to fast food menus. Misrepresentation of the tuber's well-documented health benefits have been generously coated over the bright orange side dish, like a crispy batter sustaining its structural integrity. The illusion of a healthy deep-fried side dish has been too sweet to ignore. In this essay, I, I mean, argue, I feel like we have to really name the elephant in the room, which is that sweet potato fries are not very good. Whoa, hot take. <laughs> <laughs> I love the sweet potato, orange fleshed, yellow fleshed, white fleshed, purple, all of its fleshes. I have on occasion had a purple fleshed sweet potato. It's beautiful. I love a tuber. I love a root vegetable. I love it in a stew. I love it in like a, like a peanut sweet potato kale stew situation like yes please thank you i will never choose a sweet potato fry <laughs> over a oh a, a, a russet potato fry a russet potato fry <gasps> never 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 in a million years huh so i i wonder whether or not sweet potato fries are equivalent to pineapple on pizza because I feel like oh, I feel like people who love them. That's also disgusting. Hannah, I will end this collaboration. I will end it. Pineapple on pizza is delicious, and so are sweet potato <laughs> fries. However, I think that people who love sweet potato fries, like I think that they truly, deeply, madly, Savage Garden love them. And I think that people who dislike sweet potato fries or like fuck sweet potato fries. You know what I mean? I don't think there's a happy yeah. medium there. I think you either... I like roasted sweet potato. Yeah, but we're talking about fries, baby. We're talking about fries. Like we're I just... You know, you know, it's just not my cup of tuber. Cup of tuber. But it is so evocative for me to start building these connections between Western diet culture and food imperialism, mm -hmm. which is not a connection I think that I have like consciously made before. Like this idea that a lot of food science emerges from food imperialism mm -hmm. um, is about like creating cash crops in 
exploited areas of the world, about like extracting as much value from land as you humanly can in these like profoundly unsustainable and fundamentally capitalist ways. And that there is this sort of flip side, this anxiety in the West that the hyper availability of nutritionally dense food has like ironically like the same science that is being used to address like malnutrition and famine on a global scale is like also manifesting via an anxiety about obesity, mm-hmm. quote unquote obesity, which is a word I hate, but also the words that these people totally. use yeah. in the West in particular, right? Because like it is a concern primarily of developed nations. And so this like the idea that that these systems, I mean, of course they are, but like that these systems are all connected and that there is this sort of desire almost like in a context in which food is plentiful and available, there's this sense of like moral obligation to eat less that is actually entangled with the sort of like loss of sustainable food practices on a global scale. Mm -hmm. And we have to think too about the fact that like we're living in a climate crisis. Like it's not going to get any better than it is right now. It's only going to get scarier. And so developing, (laughs) I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I gave maybe not forever, maybe not, not, not forever, hopefully. but for the next while for yeah. sure. And so 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 when I was researching for this episode, I was like, okay, okay, but also like people are literally starving. Like colonialism did so much damage that people are literally starving and mm-hmm. if a single root vegetable can alleviate hunger and starvation, like, I don't want to say that that's bad. If a single root vegetable can thrive in our plus two degrees warmer climate, especially in the regions that are not responsible for those outrageous greenhouse gas emissions like sub-Saharan Africa, like, I don't want to say that that's bad. But I think what is useful and helpful to remember is that, like, on the ground grassroots activists, particularly around like food and seed sovereignty, they are saying that it's bad. That's the thing. That's the thing that like, I can't remember where I read this, but I did read it relatively recently that every famine is human created. Mm -hmm. That like major famines are, are almost always like the product of war and or colonialism and the, you know, entanglement thereof. And that, like, there's enough food to feed everyone. Mm-hmm. That's right. And what we've done is create these systems of, like, both artificial scarcity and unsustainable excess, which is, like, the trademark of capitalism, right? That, like, yeah. the flip side of the unsustainable excess of the system that creates billionaires is a system that creates poverty. Like, poverty is not the natural state, nor is wealth. Famine is not the natural state, nor is cash crop farming. Right. Like, that there is, like, what we are looking for (laughs) is something that that is in between these extremes, and it is, like, fully possible. And so there's this way that that when we try to solve problems on the same ideological terms as the problems were created in the first place, we ultimately, like we might solve the problem in the short term, but we ultimately reinforce the structures that created the problem in the first place. Right. And that's what makes food sovereignty different from like a food science intervention that's just like, we'll make you a sweet potato that has all the nutrients you need. Mm -hmm. Like, that's not food sovereignty. No, no, no. That's just, that's just introducing a new cash crop. Because in reading all of the, like, the benefits and the uptake for this 
biofortified orange flesh sweet potato, inevitably comes the second sentence, which is like, and we can use it for all of these other food additives. We can use it to mass market. We can create new jobs. That's great. People love jobs. Jobs. Yeah, here's a massive list of new products that we can create out of this thing. So it's complicated. And I don't I don't think it's like <laughs> I know that at the at the outset it was you, Hannah, who were like, I'm not, I'm not against genetic modification. And I'm like, I am. Fuck genetic modification. <laughs> but now that we've actually come to the end of the episode, I'll stop, I'll stop playing the like self-righteous 25-year-old that I was once and be like, it's complicated. Like shit is complicated. People are in fact starving. And it's the fault of globalization and imperialism. Like, I don't know. This is not a hit piece on sweet potatoes. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a hit piece on sweet potato because you're in the pocket of big sweet potato. I am, in fact, in the pocket of big sweet potato. I fucking love sweet potatoes. I prefer sweet potatoes to, like, russet potatoes, except in potato leek soup. I've never tried to make a sweet potato leek soup. I bet it's it's gross. But here's the thing. This is an attack on my people. I know. I'm sorry. White people from from Great Britain. I know, which is also my people. <laughs> just just in case there are any listeners who've never seen us out there, I need you to know that we're both white people. We come from potato people. We come people. from a potato people, it's true. We come from a hearty stock of potato people. So anyway, sorry, this is really, this is really, really beating around the potato bush. Um, so the thing is, my relationship to sweet potato fries, for example, is very complicated because nine times out of 10, sweet potato fries are coated in a coating that I cannot eat. So to begin with, yeah, they're not gluten-free. They're not gluten-free. To begin with, I can't eat most French fries because they're always deep fried in the same fryer as all the other deep fried foods, which are battered in bread. And so they hurt my tummy. But when they are available and they are gluten-free, I am fucking there, baby. I am there. Sweet potatoes showed up and I was there. Yeah. I'm really sorry, Marcel, for you that the, you know, mid-2000s promise of sweet potatoes in every fast food restaurant didn't end up yielding roots. Mm, Yeah, they didn't yield roots. They didn't take root. It's true. It's true. Yeah. 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 And now you can only get them at health food restaurants. Or, or, shockingly, (laughs) A&W. Elliot loves... This episode brought to you by AW. Ellie loves sweet potato fries. She always gets them. No, you're right. You're right. Like the 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 fad of the sweet potato fry. Um, we are left with none but scraps, potato peelings, if you will. <laughs> Material Girls is a Witch Please production and is distributed by Acast. You can find the rest of our episodes and our other podcasts on Acast or at ohwitchplease.ca. The same website has bumper crops, plural of other content, including links to sign up for our Substack and our Patreon, as well as transcripts, reading lists, and merch. If you have questions or comments or praise, you can find us on Instagram, Threads, and X at Oh Witch Please, and on TikTok at Oh Witch Please Pod. And if you want to biofortify your support of the <laughs> podcast, head over to patreon.com slash Oh Witch Please to find a smorgasbord of bonus content. Mm, delicious. Special thanks to our Witch Please Productions team, our digital content coordinator, Gabby Iori, our social media and marketing designer, Zoe Mix, our audio engineer, Malika Gumpenkum, and our executive producer, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach. At the end of every episode, we will thank everyone who has joined our Patreon or boosted their tier to help make our work possible. Our enormous gratitude goes out to Kennedy B., Hope R., Emily S., Linnea, Jenny S., Rachel H., Kristen C., Scaffy. Yes, don't know what that means, but I love it. Scaffy, Rebecca D., Kelly H., Tophil C, Renee, Priscilla T, Lyndon C, MMM, Brianna, Ashley S, 
Aaron C., Angela K., Katie, Megan L., Zala T., Tramon, Hannah M., not me, no, Camille B., Amelia H., Catherine, Emily D.R., and Rowan B. What a list! I wonder if it's because folks are excited about the uh, late February launch of my podcast, Gender Playground. Could that be? Is that why? Uh, mm-hmm. No, no. Or or it mm-hmm. could be your Patreon-only show, Making Worlds. Or huh. maybe it's because, like the sweet potato heyday, people are figuring out what's good for them. And it's us. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Yeah, we are famously orange-fleshed. We'll be back next episode to tackle another delicious mouthful of pop culture through a whole new theoretical lens. But until then... Later, sweet potatoes. Later, sweet potatoes.